Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name this morning. Yes. There will be a basket at the back, just outside the door on your way out. You can put your offering in the basket. Thank you. As I was meditating on a pertinent subject to preach about, I was thinking how my, and this is my own feeling with how this COVID-19 has gone, it seems to have, for me, it seemed to have, have leveled off. We were headed what I considered the right direction and then the mask thing came along and took it back up a notch for me. And so this message is coming from my own struggle, in my, my own struggle with it, I guess. I think we can all agree that there's a tremendous amount of unrest in the world, but it's, I say especially in the country we're in because it's what we're most familiar with, a tremendous amount of unrest, a lot of uncertainty with the virus, with the election coming up, everything's so political, there's uneasiness, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's worry. And as the opinions of the world around us reach this fevered pitch, what is our response as Christians? How do we respond? What do we look like? What should we look like in the world, in the country, in the nation right now? What should we look like? How do we keep, and this is maybe the most important question this morning, how do we keep this turbulence from getting into our church And how do we keep it from getting into our homes and our lives and affecting our spiritual life in a negative way? How do we do that? As I looked through the Bible for some direction, I have to wonder if the times we're living in now, if it's similar to the time that Noah was living in. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, there was a lot of unrest. I don't know if, if Noah needed to wear a mask or not. But there was a lot of unrest in the world during this time. Genesis 6, the first few verses here raise a lot of questions. There's a lot of different interpretations. And I have not been able to completely figure out what it is, but I found a commentary that does give a plausible explanation. So I'll read the first five verses here of Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of men when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them and the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'll stop reading there for now. So I know we had these verses in our Sunday school lesson several months ago, and I didn't go away with a good explanation of what this actually is. So I'll attempt this morning, I did some study, and I'll attempt to explain what I believe this is referring to. According to Jameson Fawcett Brown, I believe is the commentary I was looking at, the sons of God refer to the family of Seth, known as a godly line. The daughters of men refer to the descendants of Cain. When the sons of God, or the descendants, the the righteous descendants of Seth, married the daughters of men, or the descendants of Cain, the children that they had were described as giants, mighty men, and men of renown. The word giant is Nephilim, which means fallen ones, fallen from a true walk with God, fallen from their righteousness. There are seven different words, Hebrew words, that are translated into English as giants. And they all mean persons of great something. Persons of great something. Whether it's knowledge, wickedness, courage, stature, people of great something. So it's translated as giants here, referring to their wickedness. They were giants. Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary describes it like this. He said, The term in Hebrew implies not so much the idea of great stature as of reckless ferocity, impious and daring character who spread devastation and carnage far and wide. And I guess that's where it comes up with the men of renown. They were well known for their wickedness. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the result of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Abandoning their devotion to God. I would say that is true today as well. An unequal yoke will bring you that result today. So I think in the context of these verses, verses 3 and verses 5, as we think of it in English, should actually be switched. Chapter 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now go back to verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. God saw the wickedness on the earth, and he said, This can't go on. I am not going to constantly be striving with my righteousness and the wickedness of man. God used his spirit, even at this early time in history, to use man to speak to the wickedness that was around him. The book of Jude tells of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, as preaching judgment, preaching repentance to the people of the world. He was seven, the earth was seven generations in. Some of you can go back Name your family heritage back seven generations. I know generations were a lot longer here. They were hundreds and hundreds of years old, but that doesn't seem very long. Seven generations in and already God is needing to send his spirit to, to speak to Enoch 
We don't have record here in Genesis of Noah preaching, but it, in Second uh, Peter, it talks about Noah being a preacher of righteousness. So Noah, the Spirit of God came on Noah and he preached righteousness and repentance, which was largely ignored. Verse 6, Genesis 6, verse 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Then in verse 7, God reveals his plan. Genesis 6, verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. I think we're close to the days of Noah here. The wickedness in the earth. The end times are coming near and God will say, my spirit will not always strive with man and there will be an end. There will be an end to things at the end of time. So the first seven verses of Genesis 6 paint a very bleak picture. The global gradual decay of society and the wickedness of mankind. Then we come to verse 8. And it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the title of the message this morning. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of all this turmoil, we find Noah, one man and his family who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor with God in the middle of a wicked world. And what did that look like? What did he do to gain the favor of God, to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. And there are other people in the Bible, and just a few that I thought of really quickly, and you can maybe think of some more, that found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I thought of Job. I thought of Mary. I don't know that it mentioned specifically, but Daniel came to mind. Different people finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. So in the days we're living in today, Have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Could your name be put in here? In the midst of all what's going on in the world around us, could could your name be put here and you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? What did Noah do to find grace in the eyes of the Lord? I'd like to look at the example of Noah this morning and hopefully get some insight as to how he found grace in the eyes of the Lord and learn some lessons to apply it to my life. Look at verse 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. I'm going to read that verse in the Amplified Version. It says, This is the history of the generations of Noah. Noah was a just and righteous man, blameless in his evil generation. Noah walked in habitual fellowship with God. There's three things in there that show us partially what Noah did or what was seen in his life, what God saw that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The first one is Noah was a just man. The Amplified says just and righteous. I looked that up in Strong's and it means fair, honest, and lawful. I once asked a friend of mine, you know how when you go up to someone and you say, how are you doing? And 
depending on the level of how well you know them, they'll say good or they'll answer you honestly. So I asked him, I said, how are you doing? And he said, well, he said, I answer that in three ways. I, there's three categories he breaks his life down into. His family, the church, and his work. I think that's pretty good. That captures most of what our lives are about. And so this morning, as we look at these different things of Noah, I'd like to look at it in the context of our family, our church, and our work. So Noah was a just man, just or righteous, fair, honest, and lawful. Measured up against Noah, how am I? Am I just when it comes to dealing with my family? Am I fair? Am I honest? Am I lawful? Fair and honest with my family. And then fair and honest to others about my family. Giving my family the time and the energy that they need, that they deserve. Intentionally and thoughtfully training and teaching my family is part of being just. When it comes to the church, your relationship with this local body, am I just? Am I fair, honest, and lawful? When it comes to your work, are you just? Are you fair, honest, and lawful? Noah was a just man. Noah was perfect, it says, in his generations. Perfect here means blameless both among whom he lived and in the time in which he lived. Noah was blameless. He was perfect. This would mean that he had a blameless reputation in the world around him, in the community. He was trustworthy. He was honest. He was consistent. My mind was drawn to Proverbs 22, verse 1. It says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. So you are all known in society, in the community, and the people that you work with, you're known by these people. What do they think of when they, when they hear your name? Are you blameless? Again, let's look at the three categories of family, church, and work. Would, I, would my family say that I'm blameless? That I'm striving for perfection? I think this would mean being consistent Acting, talking the same at home as I would anywhere else? Am I blameless within the church? A faithfulness to the brotherhood, easily entreated? Esteeming others better than myself? Am I blameless? Am I perfect? Am I blameless within the workforce? We discussed this a few weeks ago as well in Sunday school. Separation in business. Are we known for giving an honest square deal? Noah was just. He was perfect. Then it says, and Noah walked with God. This exact phrase, walking with God, is used only to describe one other person, and that is Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch. Again, I'd like the way the Amplified says it. It says, Noah walked in habitual fellowship with God. Do you walk in habitual fellowship with God?
both Enoch and Noah are the only people we have record of of preaching and warning the wicked society before the flood. In Hebrews, it says that the way Noah lived, even the way he lived, brought condemnation on the world. The way he conducted himself proved to the world that they were guilty just by, by his righteous life, his habitual walk with God. So what are the evidences that you are walking with God within your family? If we'd ask your children or your spouse, how would they say you are walking with God? A few things I thought of are a consistent, predictable devotional life, gentle, patient responses, and maybe you can think of more things, but a habitual walk with God. Do you walk with God within the church? Christ-like responses to disagreements. Surrendering myself for use within the church. Willingly serving. How do you walk with God in your work? I thought of things like controlling my emotions. Careful in my speech. Honest in business dealings. Walking with God. Noah was just. Noah was perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God. Those are three things we see here in Genesis chapter 6 that show us how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like to look at two more things that show how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as we're looking at these, consider your, your life. Do you find grace in in the eyes of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There are two things I'd like to look at from this verse that again show how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the first thing I'd like to look at is Noah moved with fear. Do you fear God? I think maybe what the world needs more than anything right now is the fear of God and an example of people that fear God. Probably more than anything else right now. There was inscribed on a tombstone was seen this inscription. It said, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. And that's thought provoking. Which is, which is greater? Your fear of man, your fear of God. What people are going to think of you or what God's going to think of you. The fear of God is difficult to explain some some describe it as respect respecting god it's so much more than that i look at the fear of god as we we know about the love and we like to hear about the love and the mercy and the peace that god brings to our hearts we like that it feels good but we're aware of the wrath of god and the judgment of god 
But we don't like to think about those things. But the fear of God is bringing both of those together. It's balancing the love and the mercy and the peace of God that we can have in our hearts. It's balancing that with the judgment and the wrath of God, which is just as real as the love and the mercy of God. Mike Yasinelli, I'm not sure who he is, but he said, We have defanged the tiger of truth. We have tamed the lion. The tragedy of modern faith is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. And I think there's truth to that. The tragedy of modern faith is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. So many Christians in general Christianity today have made themselves exceptions And they've manufactured a God in their mind who is only an understanding God and who will allow more and more things that are contrary to his nature. He'll allow those things because, after all, God wants us to be happy, right? And that's what's happened in society. That is not the fear of God. That's a a manufactured God who only is an understanding, loving, merciful God. It's a one-sided God, and that's not true. God does want us to be happy. He does. And I say happy and maybe joyful is the better word. But that can only come through a total 100% heart submission to God, which will result in an obedience to every single truth that we know. That's the joy that God brings us. Noah moved with fear and obedience based on that habitual fellowship, that habitual walk with God. Noah moved with fear. So Noah was just. He was perfect or blameless. He walked with God. He moved with fear. And fifthly, Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his house. That ark that Noah built was prepared by God designed by God, prepared by Noah to be a place of safety and protection for Noah and his family. God gave Noah specific instructions. If you look back at Genesis 6, you don't need to turn there, but you're familiar with the story. God gave specific instructions on how to build that ark so that it would be seaworthy, it would would float right, it would last, it would endure There's specific instructions and if Noah had gone off on his own and designed it according to his own style or his own preference or his own comfort, that would have been the end. People didn't know what boats were. People didn't know what rain was. People didn't know what floods were. They had to go by the plan that God had. Here in verse 7 in Hebrews 11, it says, Noah built the ark for the saving of his house. And the lesson here, I think is directed to parents specifically, but maybe maybe even more directed to husbands and fathers. We need to make sure we are building an ark for the saving of our house. I was having a discussion with someone recently and he was saying how someone had asked him, is your church a safe place to raise a family? If someone would ask you that, what would your answer be? Well, my first thought was, well, I hope hope so. But his answer was no, absolutely not. The church is not a safe place to raise a family. The church is under attack. 
And I, I know what both of them meant. Um, the answer did not, wasn't re- quite what the questioner was asking, but the church is not a safe place. The church is under attack. It is not a safe place to raise a family. It's something I think we need to be reminded of. And as parents, not to fall into the trap of expecting the church or our Christian school to be doing the job that we need to be doing at home. The spiritual backbone, the convictions, the priorities, that needs to be established at home. That is the job of parents at home. And the church is a good place to reinforce that. Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his house. So these five things are part, at least in part, how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was just, he was perfect, he walked with God, he moved with fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his house. How are you measuring up to these things? As it stands now, do you find grace in the eyes of the Lord? As God looks down at the wickedness all around us in the world, do you find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Don't use society as a gauge because you'll look pretty good. Don't even use other people within the church as a gauge. So at the beginning of the message, I asked the question, what, what, what should we be doing? What should we look like? What should our response to, to this behavior in society look like? When emotions and fears, the world is troubled. There's incredibly strong feelings on both sides of this this virus issue. Where do we come out? What should we as Christians be doing? I came across a story that's told of there was a, a head demon was, was schooling in some of his uh, subordinates on an ancient and effective piece of strategy. And he said this, insert yourself into simple situations which call for plain and obvious action, urged the devil, and complicate them and complicate them again until at, li- until at last no one involved can make sense of all the confusion. Does that sound familiar? Complicated and complicated and complicated again until no one can make sense of all the confusion. And that's where we are. That's where we are today. Everybody has an answer, but nobody knows. That's what it is. So I tried to take an honest look at my heart and at my life and at my responses, how I have been responding to things, And here's a few things I noticed about my own life and a few things I've noticed about other people around me. So this is some practical shoe leather things that I'm going to encourage you with because I was challenged and convicted as I looked at this. Proverbs 16.23 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, 
And now here's the part I want you to remember. And he that ruleth his spirit, then he that taketh a city. He that ruleth his spirit, then he that taketh a city. So the first thing I have here is just remain calm. People get really worked up about this. And I don't mean just people out in society. It's, it's people that you know personally can get really worked up about this. I found myself and others easily frustrated and vocal about this situation, but strong blanket statements and rash comments are rarely wise. And as I was looking at that last statement, I thought, is that a is that a blanket statement or a rash comment? And so I went and I checked with my wife. I said, is this a is this a strong blanket statement or a rash comment? And she said, no, because I have the word rarely on the end. It's rarely wise. Rule your spirit well. The next one is guard against defiance. It may be tempting to feel like our rights are being infringed on. Who are you to tell me what to do? How many rights does a Christian have? As a Christian, how many rights do you have? Consider that. I think it's very destructive to our testimony to have a defiant attitude. And although you may not agree with decisions that authorities have made, it is still our duty to be respectful. Respectful in what we say and respectful in how we live. This, I mentioned how this, this whole virus and the response to it has, has become, or it has been for quite some time, incredibly political. As a Christian, we would say and believe that our kingdom is not of this world. If that is the case, should we have political views? In our discussion as a ministry, we concluded you can be Democrat, you can be Republican, or you can be Christian. You take your pick. And lastly, just be careful what you say. Make sure it's worth it. What you say, how you say it. There's a lot of division and discord in conservative Mennonite churches about this. I know there is. I have talked to several church leaders about this and it is not a pretty picture some places. And we cannot let this divide this group. We can't do that. We can't let a mask divide this group. It is dividing some groups and we can't let that happen. Make sure what you're saying is helping to extinguish flames rather than fanning someone's fire. And this maybe is especially practical as it relates to social media. People will say things they wouldn't say to your face and people will reply to things that you would not reply to their face. Is what you're saying or what you're going to say, is it true, is it kind, and maybe most importantly, is it necessary? Psalm 39 says, I said, this is David speaking, I said I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. 
I was dumb with silence. I held my peace from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue. He had strong feelings inside, but it said he thought first, and then he spoke. We are called to be gentle, to be kind, to be reasonable people and not reactionary people. Kind, gentle, and reasonable. If we can do this, we will find grace in the eyes of the Lord. I close with this statement. My hope this morning is that we can find grace in the eyes of the Lord. That we can find grace in God's sight as we show grace to each other and to the world around us. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you never change and that you're always there and you've promised there will always be seasons and you are unchangeable. I pray that you will be with us as we respond to the world, as we are salt and light. Help us to be an accurate reflection of you to the world and to each other as we strive to find grace in your sight. Help us to give grace to each other and to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.